According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always. Where else would our growth come from? Turning your Bibles as we get started to the book of Isaiah, and this morning we arrive at Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60. Kind of left you hanging back in 2015. We got as far as Isaiah 59 and then uh, disappeared with the new year. Appreciate the, uh, the men that spoke in my absence and uh, the time off with my family. But since Isaiah's not done, I figured I'm not done. I've got to come back and finish the book, teach some more. So picking up where we left off, Isaiah chapter 60, Arise and shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. All right, we've got a good news message here today, and I want to eager to get right back to it. But let's start with a word of prayer. Let's humble ourselves before God the Father and ask for His faithfulness to lead us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing that it is for us to assemble together. Who are we, Father, that we should be brought into your counsel? Who are we that we should be brought into your understanding? And yet, Father, you are delighted to bring us into your very thinking, to give us the mind of Christ. And Father, I thank you for the blessing we have as church-age believer priests, that we are in the Holy of Holies, in your Son, before you, with unveiled face, And I thank you, Father, Father, for the blessing we have to study the Word of God this morning and that the faithfulness of your ministry does not depend on uh, how smart we are to figure these things out. It is a matter of your faithfulness. Father, it is your Holy Spirit that teaches all things, even the deep things of God. And your Holy Spirit indwells each born-again believer here today. And so we call upon your faithfulness that this message will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. I pray, Father, that we would have our eyes open and that we would understand the glories that are being revealed in this chapter and the chapters that follow. The conclusion of Isaiah is glorious, Father. And I pray that we might identify with who we are in Christ in the provision of that glory. I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. And I kind of thought maybe we would sing the Arky Arky song here today if you grew up with that in vacation Bible school or Sunday school or your childhood. Sharon was not familiar with it. I guess they don't do that in the Lutheran churches. But the uh, the Arky Arky and the all the other silly rhymes that come with this. This is the rise and shine verse from the Old Testament. This is the command to rise and the command to shine. And the light that we're shining is not our own light. The light that Israel will shine in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ will not be its own light, but it will be the light of Jesus Christ through them as lights to the Gentile nations on the millennial earth. And uh, we're going to break it down for you really into three parts, and uh, we'll take verses 1 through 3 as a unit, we'll take verses 4 through 14 as a unit, and we'll take uh, the rest of the chapter together as a unit. Well, We'll kind of break it down. Yeah, I guess 15 through 22. We'll handle in the, the third portion of this, uh, of this development. So again, rise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And in a sense, some of this could have been applied in first advent, but not in its fulfillment. And we're going to be very careful in the coming chapters to rightly divide between first advent and second advent. Next chapter especially, chapter 61, Jesus taught that chapter when he was preaching in a synagogue. And he had to be very careful to stop his reading where he didn't cross the line between first advent and second advent. Between when he came to this world to save the world and then when he's coming back to reign in glory on the throne of David. That's an important distinction we have to make. And uh, we'll, I think we'll do very well with it in these chapters. 
chapters because we're careful in this regard to rightly divide the word of truth. So the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, darkness will cover the earth. It's almost like Genesis, right? Darkness was over the surface of the deep. But huge differences. In Genesis, he says, let there be light, and there was light. And he separated the darkness from the night, and there's day one. Here, there's darkness upon the earth. But it's the spiritual darkness of satanic dominion in the great tribulation. And when he says, let there be light, he says, let there be light, because Jesus Christ himself comes back to conquer. And the glories of what we're looking at here are, uh, are extraordinary. Darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. That, that wasn't the case in Genesis. There were no peoples in Genesis. The, the Holy Spirit was brooding over the surface of the deep, and there were no peoples, not till day six, when the Lord God said, Behold, I will make man, let us make man in our image. And yet, here is darkness with peoples, Gentile nations in darkness. But the light's not coming to the Gentiles. The light is coming to Israel in their king. So the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So there's already been a rising. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. But now the Jewish people will have their own rising. Their light will rise as we understand these things coming together. And so in just breaking down these first three verses, we want to understand that the second advent of Jesus Christ will be the event that transforms the Jewish people into the light of the world. It takes the second advent of Jesus Christ to transform the Jewish people into the light of the world. They were not the light of the world at his first advent. When he came in the first advent, you can read John chapter 1 sometime, that the light came into the world and they loved darkness rather than light. He came to his own and those who were of his own did not receive him. All right, as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. This is not a first advent prophecy. This is a second advent prophecy as we understand it today with our hindsight. Keep in mind, <clears throat> many of these studies are somewhat um, difficult in, from Israel's perspective in the 6th century B.C. because they're looking forward with that perspective. We're in between the two advents, looking back and looking forward. And it's much clearer that way. And I hope if we can illustrate that here, it's going to help us in this chapter, it's going to help us in chapter 61, all the chapters through 66 to, to finish this book. Because some of what we're looking at is millennial. And some of what we're looking at today is post-millennial. That is, new heavens and new earth in the fullness of time. And so if we can get the perspective right, we're going to do ourselves some huge favors in this respect. But the Jewish people are the ones that are spoken of as the light of the world in Matthew chapter 5. Before I get to Matthew, there's a reference in Proverbs. So let me grab that. A light reference that we want to understand as far as Israel received it. Not for the church. I might uh, bust your bubble a little bit this morning if you think the bride of Christ, the church, is the light of the world. We'll, uh, we'll refine the concept some for you. But Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 18, very deep dispensational truth. In a contrast between walking in darkness and walking in light, the path of righteousness or the path of uh, the way of wisdom or the way of foolishness, the path of the wicked, as it's said there in verse 14. But you get through this whole contrast, and you know verse 18, the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Brighter and brighter until the full day. And so if you've ever seen the sun come up, you understand how this works. It, you just get a, a little glimmer at first, and then a little more, and then a little more, and then the the sun creeps over the horizon. You get, it starts to get brighter and brighter until the fullness of the day when the sun is at its brightest. And he uses this as an illustration to show in the unfolding plan of God, Adam and Eve were not given maximum brightness. In the unfolding plan of God, the Gentiles were not given maximum brightness. <clears throat> Israel in the Old Testament had an amazing brightness. They had Shekinah glory in their Holy of Holies. They had a light unlike any Gentile people in the Old Testament, but they were not given maximum brightness. And even the church, 
You and I are children of light and we walk in the light and we have light applications that Israel couldn't even dream of. And yet we do not have maximum light. There is a greater light that is yet to come. We've not reached the fullness of the day. I believe the millennium will be brighter than the church in terms of the light as it's manifest through the Jewish people to the Gentile nations. And I believe the fullness of time after the millennium in the new heavens and new earth is the full day that's spoken of here. Proverbs 4.18 actually is the verse that Pastor John Eichmann uses as his introduction when he teaches the dispensation of the fullness of time. That is, the thousand generations of the new heavens and the new earth is the fullness of the day. In any event, there we have it in uh, Proverbs uh, 4.18. When we get to Matthew chapter 5, we have the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, we have a passage that is best understood if we want to rightly divide the word of truth. We accept the Sermon on the Mount as the constitution of the millennial kingdom. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. Those passages are primarily for Israel as they look forward to that kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth. We still make our own applications, certainly. We will make our secondary, secondary applications in our day and age. And we're very profited through any of these texts, through the Lord's Prayer, through the Beatitudes, through any of these uh, aspects that are in these chapters. But I think uh, we better back off, first of all, and, and recognize what the primary fulfillment is, and it's not us. It is Israel in the millennial kingdom. It is the kingdom of heaven when it arrives on this earth. And uh, the fulfillment that happens there. And so when we talk about the salt of the earth in verse 13, is that the church? Is that uh, the church, local church? Is that the church universal? Is that uh, uh, the United States of America? All right. I'm going to get in trouble this morning. It's Israel. Israel is the preserving nation. We are a heavenly people called out of all the earthly nations. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And I know that the founding fathers adapted this text. And I know that a lot of the early pilgrims, a lot of the early Puritans were very impacted. And uh, sadly, they were post-millennial in much of their thinking. They felt the new world was new Zion and they were bringing in righteousness on this earth. And I love the fact that they were saved and operating under biblical conditions, convictions, but many of our founding fathers were maladjusted to the dispensational program of the Lord. America is not Zion. We are not the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Israel has eternal promises that we do not have. Israel is the light of the world. And I love, you know, Ronald Reagan's light shining on a hill speech. You can find it on YouTube and watch it once a month if you want to encourage yourself, but America is not the bright city shining on the hill of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That will be Jerusalem, where the Lord himself dwells. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. <clears throat> now again, we will get to Ephesians chapter 5, and I will show the light application for the body of Christ. And based on that, Based on Acts chapter 5 and our role as children of light, we can come back to the Sermon on the Mount and draw out secondary principles that we can certainly apply. No question on that. But we do so because Ephesians 5 gives us the authority to do so. Not for the sake of Matthew 5 all by itself. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now I will never tell a church age believer to not obey that verse. I will tell every church-age believer I meet, including everyone that I'm looking at right here, right now, obey that verse, all right? Let your light shine in such a way because you have a light. You have a light in the Lord, all right? And it's different from the millennial light that Israel will have, but it still is a light. And you should let your light shine in such a way that men will see your works and glorify your Father. Clearly, we can apply this in our own church age even if it's primarily given to Israel and what they can look forward to. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And this is what we're looking at here as well. And in fact, when they're going to get kingdom law when Jesus Christ arrives, he's going to intensify the law. He's going to add middle attitudes to the external deeds, and he's going to put his law within their heart. 
so that Israel will fulfill in the millennium what they never fulfilled in the Old Testament. There's a powerful thing I can't wait to see in uh, terms of looking at those things as well. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And again, we read, join me there in John chapter 8. We read that, and all too often we read it with our church age perspective. We read it with our hindsight. And we say, yeah, there's Jesus. He's the light of the world, and we're in Him. Positional truth, church age, stop. He was not in the church age when He first gave this message. And His primary audience was to the Jews who had believed in Him. He's talking to Israel. And specifically, he's speaking to Israel when their political leaders, when their religious leaders are on the verge of crucifying him. And so the the main application of Jesus Christ as the light of the world from the John 8 perspective is when he comes back in second advent and leads Israel into their millennial glory. So in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, obviously, that's true today. We apply it today. We want to follow Christ, the light of the world. We want to walk in his light, and we do so in the church age. But this is contrasting where the world's going to be in the great tribulation. The darkness that Isaiah 60 speaks about. The great darkness that comes upon the people's and the role of Israel to bring the Gentiles out of that darkness and to teach them in the millennial kingdom when the light of Jesus Christ shines through them. So take John 8, and instead of immediately connecting it to Ephesians 5, take the time to connect it back to Isaiah 60 and and observe Israel's fulfillment before the church has a fulfillment. Because in order for Israel to have this fulfillment, Christ has to come back in second advent in glory, and that includes us. We'll be with him when this happens. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. This is a message that the Jewish people are going to have a hard time accepting. And in the tribulation, there's going to be many who don't. There's going to be many that follow after Antichrist and they're going to trust the promises of the liar for their peace. But there will be some who will look to the light and they will trust in the Christ whom they crucified. And they will call upon the Christ whom they crucified and he will return and he will save them. Likewise, when you get to John chapter 9 and verse 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Let me ask you something. Is Jesus physically bodily in the world today, in 2016, like he was in 33 AD? He is not. That's right. So the light function of the I am statement of chapter 8 is conditional in the while I am statement of chapter 9. And so during his first advent, for the remainder of his time before he ascends to the Father, he is operating as the light of the world to the Jewish people. And now that is presently suspended until he returns at the second advent. When he returns at the second advent, he will once again resume his role as the light of the world. And he will fulfill the Isaiah 60 prophecies that the the light will shine in the darkness. In any event, the, uh, the urgency on this. He says, night is coming. Verse 4, we must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. There is a, a night time coming because Israel will reject their Messiah. They reject their King. And the light of the world is going to ascend and sit at the Father's right hand. And Israel will be given over. A partial hardening will come upon the Jewish people until the church age is complete. All right, we have here in, this, in, in these messages, we don't often think of them this way because we're so quick to take these messages and bring them into a church application. But you can't do that in the Gospel of John until you get to chapter 13 when Judas walks out of the upper room. Then you get to primary church texts in the uh, Gospel of John. Over to chapter 12, verse 36. I tell you, they didn't have cedar in Orlando. Our welcome back party was getting off the plane and being greeted by every cedar tree in central Texas. All right. John chapter 12. It's interesting how at his baptism... 
the voice came out of heaven, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then here in chapter 12, he says in verse 27, My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Don't ask God to take away your testing. Ask God to glorify Jesus Christ through your testing, because that's why He put you there. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. He's coming to the close of first Advent work. But he, he, second Advent work is coming up. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Interestingly enough, this promise of future glory in second Advent is not understood by the unregenerate. They don't have the ears to hear. Everybody heard the, the voice at his baptism. Everybody heard the gospel voice of that's my son. But this voice, that's just thunder. That's a crashing noise. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And while he was saying this, he was saying this to indicate what kind of death he was to die. And this becomes a problem then for many of the critics in his audience. They don't understand what he's talking about. Where are you going? How can you leave? The Christ is supposed to stay forever. Verse 34, the crowd then answered, we've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever, <laughs> right? Uh, hello, we're reading our Bibles here and it says when Messiah comes, it's an eternal kingdom. That's right. Put two and two together. See how this comes into, into focus. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? That title made them so angry. So Jesus said, for a little while longer, the light is among you for a little while longer. So for Israel's understanding, we need to kind of forget what we know in the church age and just recognize they had light when their Messiah was with them. And then he left. And Israel is in their darkness. The whole world will be in darkness after the rapture of the church. Okay? But light is coming back. He will glorify it again. Light is coming back. So for a little while... Uh, the, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And there's so much doctrine in that verse. I, I'd like to unfold that for a month. The finite occasion. You know, eternity is so forever, but the opportunity to receive eternal life is very finite. And we don't know if today is the last day we have to trust in Jesus Christ and to receive eternal life. So these things Jesus spoke, went away and hid himself. And there's, there's the application there. And notice what's on his mind as he's doing all these things. It's Isaiah the prophet. Why is Isaiah the one that's quoted in these verses then that follow? All right. Before I leave John, just... Flip over to chapter 13 and mark a verse for me, would you? Um, put a little star in between, in chapter 13, between verse 30 and verse 31. That little star is powerful because verse 30 marks the departure of Judas Iscariot. Uh, prior to, to that verse, Judas, the unbeliever, is in the upper room with all the other disciples. And so they have the foot washing and they have the early messages there in the upper room discourse. But as soon as he goes out, Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And he receives the morsel and he goes out. And then it was night. In verse 31, therefore, when, it had, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. The departure of Judas Iscariot marked a threshold. And I can just imagine the traitor leaves, the door closes. And with the closing of that door, Jesus says, all right. Now, you need get your get your notebooks out, get your pens ready, because the rest of chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is a whirlwind of church age information. And, and the, the Peter and all these guys, their heads are just spinning because they don't have the Holy Spirit to understand any of it. But it's necessary for 
the body of Christ to accept, to understand John 13 through 17, the upper room and walk to the garden discourse was, was the, the great prophecy of Jesus Christ to, to give church age information before even Pentecost, before they received the Holy Spirit. So that when the Spirit does descend in Acts chapter 2, now they can start to digest everything He told them on the night in which He was betrayed. It's an amazing, amazing hint. So just put a little star there between verse 30 and 31 of, uh, of John chapter 13. If you want more on that, our Life of Christ series is on the website, just sitting there minding its own uh, business. And you can get those MP3s and, and, and listen to that upper room message. Powerful, powerful message. All right. Spiritual darkness will cover the earth during the tribulation. Unlike any time before, and reminiscent of the Genesis description of the Tohu Wabohu judgment upon this earth. Spiritual darkness will cover the earth during the tribulation, unlike any time before. And in, even in some aspects of judgment, there will be literal physical darkness as well. There will be, in a part of the judgment during the tribulation, the sun, the moon, the stars are all going to go out. There will be periods of great darkness over the earth with the, vol- the vials and the bowls and the trumpets. Okay? But before any of that starts happening, the rapture of the church removes every born-again believer from the planet. And this world is given over, restraint is lifted, and Satan will have free reign with empowerment like he's never had before. And you think he blinds the minds of the unbelieving now? Just wait until there's no more permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a body of Christ that restrains what he does in this present evil age. There will be a remarkable darkness. So as I return back to Isaiah chapter 60, we have it here. Darkness will cover the earth. In deep darkness, the peoples. It's kind of like forever and then forever and ever. When you have darkness and deep darkness, it is the absence of any light, the absence of any grace. Really a foreshadowing of what the lake of fire is going to be. If you ever do those kind of studies. But when the glory of the Lord arises, Israel's light will rise and shine as a lighthouse beacon to every Gentile nation. And so there's multiple risings in this chapter. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Spoken of as completed action. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Based on that, you now need to rise and shine. Okay? I mean, every morning we get the illustration, the sun rose from the east this morning. Did you notice that? does so every morning. Every morning. Do we do that? Okay. We don't rise upon the earth and shine forth. Israel will. And they will do so. The Jewish people will be the rising, shining light to the Gentile nations for a thousand years as Jesus Christ sits on that throne in Jerusalem. So when the glory does so, notice, nations will come to your light. They don't do that today. (laughs) When the United Nations gets together, usually it's to hate Israel or beat up on the United States or to try to get more money out of us or different things, to criticize what we're doing or this and that. No, when the nations assemble after the second advent of Jesus Christ, those that survive, I mean, because he kills most of them, but those who survive, the believers that pass through Armageddon, that survive and and, and are uh, blessed to enter into the kingdom in the sheep and goat judgment, those Gentile nations will walk in the light of Israel. They will walk in the light of the Jewish people as Israel will be teaching those nations for the thousand-year reign. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, if you want to contrast and and understand the role of the church, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but enough at least to leave you uh, where you're not totally bewildered between now and Wednesday night. Okay, We do question and answer on Wednesday night, so if you want to follow up on this or if you want to say what about or yeah but, okay, I love yeah buts. The yeah buts tell me that, that believers are thinking, okay, that they have this verse, yeah, but we got this verse, and they're putting two and two together. Okay. Don't, aren't we also light? Yes, we're light. But just because we're light doesn't mean that we're the same light as the light that's promised to Israel in their eschatology. 
So Ephesians 5, uh, 6 through 21, we are children of light. We are no longer of this world. We are in the world, but not of the world. Important distinctions that can be found. And there's a huge distinction. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's not us. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are a light in the world. So we have a light application, but it comes because we're saved. Because we receive eternal life and we're now born again in Christ. And it doesn't say that He's come back to reign on a throne. It doesn't say that Israel is entering into their nation. It doesn't say rise and shine and and teach the Gentile nations. It doesn't say rise and shine and make this world a better place. It says, come out from among them and be ye separate. It says, no longer participate in those unfruitful deeds of darkness. Be careful how you walk as children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It's a personal application, not a, not a corporate, national, global application. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is how you conduct your daily walk. Your personal life. You make choices based on the Word of God to shine light to this lost and dying world. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. That's not Second Advent. That's not millennial. Christ is going to crush all the rebellion. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. So just keep your light shining. Keep your light shining. And and don't participate in what they're doing. Don't take up a crusader cause to try to stop them from what they're doing. But you keep doing what you're doing so that it shines, so that what they're doing is shown for what it is. For this reason it says, awake, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Guess what? There's an Isaiah fulfillment or Isaiah reference there as an illustration for what we are obeying in the church age. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. This is a church age context, not the millennium, not the second advent. This is you and I today. In fact, more and more so every day. This this darkness is getting worse. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I like that. (laughs) This is a great verse that says, if you don't know the will of the Lord, you're a fool. And I'm not calling you names. The Bible's calling you names. It says, don't be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We should be under the influence of God the Holy Spirit every day. There's no hangovers with that. Okay? Be drunk with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You ever see drunk people singing? I don't want to show hands or anything. It was not testimony hour. But, you know, when you're under the influence, your attitude's different. There's some mirth and some singing and whatever. But guess what? That should be us under the Holy Spirit. Thinking things we don't think otherwise. Saying things we don't say otherwise. Doing things we don't do otherwise. But you know what? The Holy Spirit just... It's in charge, and there I go. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. All right, there's our light application. So the church's function in light has many similarities to Israel's light function, but with several significant distinctions. And I think as we rightly divide the word of truth and we see the church's role in this world, we see Israel's role in this world, we're not here to thrust a theocracy upon the place. We're not here to enforce biblical Christianity on this fallen world. We're here to shine the light so that they might see that gospel, the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. We should be that light on a personal, individual basis. We're not the covenant nation. All right, more fulfillment there, but I'm going to have to let that go. I could spend the whole hour on that. But there's more verses besides verses 1 through 3. Lift up your eyes round about, and now I'm safe. Now I'm, 
I can have successfully resisted the rise and shine and give God the glory, glory, children of the Lord chorus. You know, there's like 17 verses to that song. It goes on and on and on and on. They went on by twosies, twosies. They came off by threesies, threesies. I'm not going to sing it. Everything was hunky-dory. Give God the glory, glory. All right. And think, you know, there will be reward for that. I want to meet the author of that song and, and watch him at the judgment seat of Christ or her. It's probably a woman with kids. It'd be fun to see that reward of the judgment seat of Christ. Let's look at Israel in the millennium. Israel in the millennium will reap a global, voluntary, Gentile free will offering, the spoils of war. The Gentile nations are going to bring tribute and they're going to keep bringing tribute. They're not going to stop for a thousand years. They're going to keep bringing tribute. And it's, uh, it's going to be on a voluntary basis. I think, remember when, when they first built the tabernacle, Moses had to say, stop, we have enough. Because the Jews were so happy to be out of Egypt and they plundered the Egyptians anyway. And they had all this wealth and they brought and they brought and they brought and they brought. And it was not a, a tithe of 10% of what they had to give. It was a free will gift of sky is the limit, whatever you want to give. All right? And they gave and they gave and they gave. And the Jewish people gave so much. Moses and Aaron finally said, that's enough. We can build the tabernacle already. We're good. Okay? The Gentiles are going to be doing that after the second advent of Jesus Christ. For a thousand years, Gentile nations are going to be bringing tribute. And they're not going to be paying you know, a United Nations tax because they have to. They're going to be bringing it to Jerusalem because they want to. And we have it here in verses 4 through 14. Lift up your eyes round about and see. Might as well. The light's on. Take a look at it. Okay? If the light is shining, guess what? You get to see things you weren't able to see before. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Now that'll start to drift towards the end. There'll be rebellion at the end of the millennium. But in the first generation, every nation comes. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in their arms. All Israel will be saved. The Jewish people will be regathered from the four corners of the earth. Then you will see and be radiant. Your heart will thrill and rejoice. Israel's not fulfilling that today. Israel looks around and they see enemies that hate them. They see Muslims that want their destruction. And pretty soon they're going to look around and see not one friend left in this world. The United States of America used to be their last remaining friend. Well, they're going to have a different vision in the millennium. They will see and be radiant. Their heart will, be, will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. Remember, land is Israel, sea is Gentiles in the imagery of prophecy. A multitude of camels will cover you. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense. They will bear new, good news of the praises of the Lord. And all of the foreshadowings of this, the queen of Sheba that came and brought wealth to Solomon, or the wise men, the magi that came and brought gifts to Jesus, the baby Jesus, all of that's just foreshadowing, typology, prophecy looking forward. The real fulfillment comes when all the nations of the earth bring the wealth of the nations to the Jewish people. And they will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. They're doing so by grace through faith in response to an evangelism message that the 144,000 Jewish evangelists gave them during the tribulation. All right. Can you imagine? How thankful is a tribulational survivor going to be? Especially a Gentile dog. Instead of being under the thumb of Antichrist, got saved through the gospel of ministry of one of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Man. What a, you bet they're going to be bringing gifts. How do you repay that? All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together with you. The rams of Nebaioth will be minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar. I shall glorify my glorious house. 
Who are those who fly like a cloud, like the doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Every Gentile nation will be delighted to come and glorify Israel, because the God of Israel has glorified Israel. Verse 10, foreigners will build up your walls. <laughs> you know, until this time, the foreigners are trouble. The foreigners lead you into idolatry. The strange women lead you into trouble. Not so in the millennium. The foreigners are there and they're there to serve. They're delighted to bring the gifts to the Jewish people. Their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you. In my favor I've had compassion on you. All of it was the outworking of the plan of God for the Jewish people. Your gates will be open continually. You don't have to bar the gates against an enemy because Christ crushed the enemies. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish. The nations will be utterly ruined. Now at sheep and goat judgment, of course, after Armageddon, Jesus executes every unbeliever that survives. I mean, most of them die anyway because of Armageddon, but those who are not saved at the sheep and goat judgment, he, he executes them, he sends them to hell. Only believers enter the millennial kingdom. So the sheep on the one side, the goats on the other side, the Gentile sheep get to come in and, get, and create those first nations of the millennial earth. And, and their kings are going to be delighted to bring their tribute every single year, at least to start with. Read Zechariah 14, you start to learn that in later years they start to scheme they start to drift from that mandatory attendance. Even with perfect environment and perfect government, the unregenerate mind can still rebel against all kinds of things. So a nation and kingdom which will not serve you will perish and the nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you. The juniper, nasty, rotten, western juniper, The box tree, the cypress together. Remember, uh, there's, there's environmental adjustments for the millennium. The lion lies down with the lamb. The child puts his hand in the, in the viper's nest. And the uh, junipers stop poisoning people that live in Austin, Texas. <laughs> but they come together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I shall make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. Now notice it's not just generation one, but it's going to last from generation to generation to generation. And I find that interesting. I lived in Germany for two years and the older generations loved Americans because they remembered World War II. They remembered the freedom that they were provided. The younger generations, it doesn't take long, and the younger generations, what are you doing here? resentful and it's uh, it's interesting and so when i read here about the sons of those who afflicted you and i see the generations then that follow i find it interesting because i don't believe generation one will still be alive by the end of the thousand year reign it's going to take a while for that lifespan to be restored back up to the to the centuries point all right all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And they'll start to appreciate the real meaning of Zion. They'll start to appreciate God in their midst through the, and the blessings they have through the Jewish people. So now we come down through verse 14. Now all of that is millennial. There's a shift in verse 15. And we'll have to demonstrate that as well. Before we do, though, here's some points. Light permits vision. We actually saw John 8 already that illustrated that, uh, where you don't stumble in the, in the darkness because you have the light. More references to that in John 11. More references to that in Exodus 10. Light permits vision. Without light, there's no vision. That's true physically in terms of your eyeballs, and that's true spiritually in terms of the grace of God that allows light in this fallen cosmos. If you're going to spiritually perceive anything, it requires light to do so. 
And so as the light rises, he tells them, look around. See what you can see now, because for the first time, the light of Zion is shining upon Israel, in spite of the fact that they crucified him in his first advent. Isn't that gracious? Lift up your eyes round about and see. When you go to the Exodus passage there in Exodus 10, you'll find that darkness had fallen all upon Egypt, and all of Egypt was in total darkness, stumbling around, not seeing anything, except, guess what? In the Jewish homes in the land of Goshen, there was light. Isn't that amazing? And here's a pattern for you. Here's a preview of what we might expect at the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Where's the light going to shine? It's going to shine upon Israel, upon the Jewish people. The Gentiles will have to come to their light as they come out of the darkness. Likewise, John chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. We didn't read that one earlier. John 11. I love John 11. It's a great funeral chapter. You got the resurrection of Lazarus. You've got I am the resurrection and the life. But John 11, verses 9 and 10, he says, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. See, they got the report that Lazarus was dead, and Jesus says, All right, let's go. And the disciples are, Wait a minute. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we just escaped, and now you want to go back? They want to kill you. He says, well, there's still work to be done. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And then it goes on, and he describes the resurrection of Lazarus and the miracle that's done there. Israel is going to see the recompense of the Lord as it arrives. Israel is going to see the recompense of the Lord. Second Advent is a day of judgment. It's a day of recompense. He will pay them back. Okay? Understand that because we live in this fallen world and payback is, is a carnal concept, usually. Right? Payback is what you get at work. Payback is what your coworker gives you. Payback is, is, is ugly in this fallen world. Okay? But God uses the term recompense in a sanctified sense because the God of vengeance is not idle. He will, he will reward those who are undeservedly suffering in time. There is recompense on the way and it comes at second advent. So look about and see. See, in my wrath I struck you, but in my grace I have had compassion on you. And he wants Israel to have the capacity to see every nickel that comes in. Every plug nickel that comes in of all the wealth that they're going to reap. And they're going to identify that it's his recompense to Israel. Light permits vision. See, this has become my prayer more and more lately. God is infinitely faithful. But we are so very finite in how we apprehend his faithfulness. Sometimes we only see a little bit of his faithfulness. And because we only see a little bit, we think that he's just a little bit faithful. He's infinitely faithful. And then there's other occasions when we see more and we think that God is more faithful. No, he's still infinitely faithful. We just have an increased capacity to see it, to apprehend it, to identify it for what it is. So my prayer more and more lately is, increase, God, increase my capacity to identify more and more and more of your faithfulness. Increase my capacity to identify it. And if that means he's also going to increase my capacity to endure suffering, well, it goes with it. But I want to, I want to identify more of his faithfulness because it is infinitely greater than anything I've ever seen. I've only glimpsed the fringes of his ways. Israel will be seeing his faithfulness. The non-stop arrival of booty the non-stop arrival of booty. Okay? This is plunder. This is loot. Right? Not, yeah, careful. I had a... Carmen didn't know what booty was. She grew up in Germany and she's, she knows English very well, but just booty was a term she hadn't yet been exposed to. Remarkably enough, it comes from Middle German. But um, this, is, this is not the disco tune. Um, this is, okay, you don't shake this booty. This is, this is loot, plunder. This is uh, the wealth of the nations. They're delighted to give. 
and it requires the gates to remain open day and night. That's actually a huge clue. Because in the fullness of time, there is no night. Okay? But for the thousand years, there is day and night still. And there's distinctions we need to draw. We have to be careful with our eschatology. I think we have to rightly divide. Larkin taught this. uh, Trench taught this. Let's start to differentiate between the millennium and after the millennium. In the millennium, there's still day and night. In the millennium, there's still a river that flows east and west into two different seas. But on the new earth, there is no sea. Okay? On the new earth, there is no night. And there's distinctions that we have to draw. And I think if we're careful, it becomes a glorious thing to, to celebrate. And, uh, and, and, and sadly, though, the, the mockers, they look at that and they say, oh, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. See, this verse says day and night. This verse says there is no night. And, they, and they're all prideful in their Bible hatred to say, see, your Bible contradicts itself. Nah, 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 whatever. They're just so hateful anyway. Stop, slow down, laugh at them, say, wait a minute. I'm, I'm thankful for pointing those things out. This is not a contradiction whatsoever. In the millennium, we still have day and night. In the millennium, we still have physical death. The youth will die at 100. Okay, that's coming up, Isaiah 65. The youth will die at 100. I'll have a 100-year-old person dying. Everyone's going to say, oh, that's so sad. They were so young. They had their whole life in front of them. They were only 100. Okay? The new heavens, new earth, there is no more death, no more crying, no more pain. The first things have passed away. Another application. And the skeptics, the Bible haters, different folks say, see, is there death or is there no death? Just smile. Say, thank you. It's not a contradiction. But it's a significant observation to make as you rightly divide between the millennium and after the millennium. The millennium's only a thousand years long. Come on, that's just a day. It's a temporary Uh, what I call a a temporary provisional government. Anytime you have a military conquest, you set up a provisional government until you can turn it over to the permanent government. Jesus Christ conquers in Armageddon. The millennial kingdom is his provisional government just for that day of the Lord, the day of Israel's repentance, okay? The day of their sorrow. New heavens and new earth is not a thousand years. It's a thousand generations. We'll say more about that here as we wind this up. So uh, it is an important clue as to the millennial fulfillment on the present earth. Also verse 20, another clue. Because in verse 20, your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. It will be an eternal day. No more night, no more darkness, no more tomorrow. You know? In some ways, tomorrow is the biggest enemy we've got going. Because we turn tomorrow into an idol. Like, you know, the, the Procrastinators Association of America. Okay, right? Right, exactly. I haven't gotten around to joining that one yet. But we're all procrastinators. We all put things off till tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. The new heavens and new earth, we have the eternal day. No more night, no more darkness. So we have these clues, and I think they're useful. And I think when you create a comprehensive eschatology, you want to do this kind of thing. So as you outline these verses, 4 through 14 is millennium, 15 through 22 is new heavens, new earth, and the fullness of time. After the millennium. Okay? After the millennium. Israel in the fullness of times will be the pride and joy of every Gentile nation from generation to generation. Literally, generation 1 to generation 1,000. Because Scripture tells us how long this age is going to be. Israel in the fullness of times will be the pride and joy of every Gentile nation. That's not millennial. The millennial nations are going to chafe at their bonds. Read Psalm 2 sometime and see how the kings of the earth are livid over the Messiah who is ruling them. And they're going to conspire together. They're going to plot and scheme some way to force Jesus Christ's abdication off His throne and to demand the release of Satan out of the abyss. And they're going to call for that. They're going to march against Jerusalem on the final day of the thousand-year reign. And they're going to demand the release of Satan. They get the release of Satan. 
When you read uh, Deuteronomy 7, 9, when you read 1 Chronicles 16, 15, when you read Psalm 105, verse 8, all three times you have the promise that a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ will be blessed. A thousand generations. Three times in Scripture. It's not a thousand years. Unless you're a fruit fly or a cat or a dog or whatever, you can't have a thousand... You can have a thousand generations of cats in... in yeah, they can... They can yeah, yeah, a kitten can grow and reproduce within a year. But we can't. People can't. Certainly not millennial people that are living centuries can't. The millennium is only a thousand years. But it will be a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 7. If you've never seen these before, just write them down, read them, pray about them. Get yourself one of the ABC readers in the hallway, the Plan of God reader. You get more information there. But Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now they are eternal blessings. We're not saying that the blessings stop. They are eternal blessings. But the recipients of those blessings are a finite number of people that receive those blessings. And that finite number of people is 1,000 generations. 1,000 generations. We haven't even had that many. There's 60 from Adam to Jesus when you read the, the, the chronologies there. You ever do that? No, I know you ignore the begat chapters. They're boring. But you can count 60 generations from Adam to Jesus. And if there's a few skips here and there, it's not 940 skips here and there. There's 60 generations from Adam to Jesus. How many generations have we had since Jesus? In the last 2,000 years. Okay? I'm in the seventh generation from Adam, the Bolanders that came to the United States in 1750, or 1751. And I'm in the seventh generation there. We haven't had a thousand generations yet. But we will. It's going to take the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking forward to. First Chronicles 16.15 Say, whoever reads Chronicles... 1 Chronicles 16, 15. Remember His covenant forever. The word which He commanded to a thousand generations. Again, the time is eternal. It never ends. But the recipients are finite. A thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. Psalm 105 and verse 8. Oh my goodness, I'm running out of time. The first Sunday back after vacation. You know, I haven't preached since last year. did the New Year's Eve service, and I wanted to be out the parking lot at 12.01. It was more like 12.20. All right. Psalm 105, verse 8. He has remembered His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which He made with Abraham, His oath to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. It's a thousand generations say and i believe words mean things and i take things literally i don't just blow that all off and figuratize it and end the plan the dispensational plan of god with a thousand year millennial kingdom the new heavens and the new earth will feature an eternal day take these verses in isaiah 60 verses 19 and 20 compare them over to revelation 21 revelation 22 the new heavens and the new earth, as the Apostle John wrote it, after the millennium, after the great white throne judgment. The preeminence of Israel will make the smallest tribe more powerful than the mightiest Gentile nation. Is the United States of America the mightiest nation that's ever been upon the face of this earth? Well, maybe, maybe not. We say we are. The smallest of the tribes of Israel will be greater than anything this world has ever seen. And even better, as mighty as they are, there's no more war. <laughs> They've beaten their plowshares into, you know, swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. They never again learn war. But the 12 tribes of Israel are the top 12 most mighty nations on the face of the new earth. Mighty in righteousness. Mighty in wealth. Mighty in production. Mighty in fruitfulness. 
mighty in every constructive way. You know, when I see, what are the Jewish people, 1% of the population? Less than? How many Nobel prizes do they have? How many contributions have they made to humanity? It, it is completely out of any kind of explicable proportion. <laughs> Consider what the 12 tribes will do when Jesus Christ shines through them. In the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's going to be a glory. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for Isaiah. I thank you for the future that Israel has. I, I grieve over the churches that teach a replacement theology that, that strip away all the glory that you've promised to Israel and replace it with the church and appropriate promises for themselves that were never given to, to the church. And Father, the, the, the very blasphemy of this replacement theology is, is, is calling you a liar. Father, you are not a liar. You will not lie to Abraham. You will not lie to David. You, you cannot lie. And you have promised this glory to a thousand generations. And I pray that we would be humble before you to rightly divide the word of truth, to see our place as the bride, ministers with Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, a new covenant that's not with us, Father. It's with Israel. Help us to identify your unfolding plan. Help us to have stability in our day and age. If there's, I'm, I'm thankful, Father, that we have the freedom we have. I'm thankful that we have the, the privilege to vote. I'm looking forward to voting. I'm looking forward to the next president. But my hope's not in the next president. Father, your son will return. He will take his seat. And we're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.